0: Matthew chapter 9, we're, we're going to be looking at a few verses here. We're, we're still kind of loosely on this topic of prayer this summer. We're moving towards some things now as Ventura starts, and we're going to be heading a few directions in the next few weeks, but we're still loosely talking about prayer. The title of this message is You Know What's Weird About Prayer? That's the title of this message. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you hear us. That's a wonderful thing about prayer. The Bible's explicit about that. You're the God who listens. You're the God who is there. You're the God who cares. You're the God who is present and powerful and working. And we pray that all those things would be true this morning. You'd be present. You'd be powerful here. You'd be present in a powerful way and that you'd be working in our lives, Lord, that none of your truth, none of your presence, none of your beauty, none of your righteousness will be lost on us, Lord. Don't let us go into autopilot this morning as a congregation, but tune us in to your Holy Spirit and what you would have to say to the church this morning. We want to be instructed by you for your glory, and Lord, we ask together that you would help me. To communicate, I want to communicate what you would have me communicate. I want to do it well by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that honors a person of Jesus. So we ask together that you'd help me, that you'd help us, and that we'd hear from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 One of the things that I kind of struggle with in my life, a question that I often find myself asking is this. Why doesn't God do more? You ever struggle with that? You ever think about that? Why doesn't God do more? I mean, why aren't there more people that are getting saved in our community? Why aren't there more churches being planted? Why aren't more marriages being healed? Why aren't more people being healed? See people all the time with infirmities, with cancer, with this. Why not more Why why not a greater revival in the coastlands here? I find myself struggling with that all the time, thinking about that. God, why don't you do more? Because I read the Bible and I'm a student of the Bible and I see that God does some amazing, astounding things in the Bible and that kind of whets my appetite. And so I start asking God, why don't you do more now here? And I ponder this often and then I kind of start to think, slowly it turns into, well, why don't I do more? I mean, yeah, I want God to do more, but also, why, why don't I do more? Why don't I share the gospel more often? Why am I not praying for people more often? Why am I not caring for more of the sick, more of the poor? Why am I not identifying more of the marginalized in our community and reaching out to them? Why don't I do more? That's a valid question. And because I'm kind of a a community guy, because I'm kind of into the church and and us together gathered around Jesus, that very quickly becomes, why don't we do more? I'm not gonna just let it be a me thing, but I'm I'm gonna think in the we sense. Why don't we do more? Did you know that only one out of 100 Christians has any meaningful involvement in the great commission. Only one out of a hundred of all the Christians in the world has any meaningful involvement in informing the world about Jesus in ministering to the world in the name of Jesus. One out of a hundred. And yet we're all called, we're all commissioned. And this is begging the question, why don't we do more? And I think about the possibilities. What what if that number went from one out of 100 to just two out of 100? It's still not much. It's still pretty pathetic, but it would be a 100% increase. It would be a doubling of people on mission, of people on the mission field, people going to the nations, of resources being loosed, of churches being birthed. It would be a doubling of all those things. I think it's possible. Within Christianity, in this generation, to go from one out of a hundred meaningfully involved in the Great Commission to easily two out of a hundred to double what we are doing concerning the work of the kingdom. And then I find that in Scripture, there's this delicate balance between what God does and what we're supposed to do what we should be expecting Christ to do and what Christ expects us to do. And this informs and this affects our prayers. And in the passage we're going to look at in a moment, we see this delicate interplay between Christ doing and us doing. But we might be surprised at what Christ beckons us to do first in this passage this morning. So here in Matthew chapter 9, start reading to verse 35 with me. It says, And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, he's up in the Galilee now, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and they were downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest." I want us to catch a few things from this passage. In verse 35, we have Jesus doing what Jesus does. And it's good. He's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's healing. And it's wonderful. And Jesus did these things in Israel when he came. He taught. He went to the synagogues and he taught. And he taught along the roads and he taught in the hills and he taught on the Galilee. Jesus was teaching And he was proclaiming, he proclaimed. The word keruso in the Greek, it's to be like a herald. He was heralding, he was announcing, he was making known the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel just means good news. He was announcing to everyone there that there was good news. That in him, God was present. And that God is a savior God. And that Jesus had come in the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. John 3.17 says. And that he came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And to give sight to the blind. And to heal the lame. And to set the captives free. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming, heralding the good news that God was working amongst the people. And he was manifesting the kingdom and that he was healing. Uh, The healings that Jesus did and, and does now are kind of a down payment on the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom. Where there will be no more sickness, where there will be no more death. Anyone that gets healed now, they still eventually die. All healings are temporary now. Even Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was going to die again, physically speaking. They're all temporary. But but when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. And Jesus kind of gives a a foreshadowing and tastes a demonstration of the kingdom. And Jesus is doing this today. Jesus is still present in the world today, working through the church, teaching, proclaiming, or heralding, making known the good news, and healing. People are getting healed today. There's people in this church that have been healed spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Went and saw a sister in the hospital this week she was in the hospital they didn't know where she'd at, when she get out when she get out and we went in and we prayed for her and she got out you know God heals people he's still doing these things Jesus is and so in verse 35 he's doing what he does and then in verse 36 we have this this interesting commentary and seeing the multitudes he that is Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed or harassed literally And downcast or thrown down, literally, like sheep without a shepherd. The people, the multitudes, those who were following Jesus, present in the region of Galilee, were all messed up. They were like us. They were like the people around us. They were just messed up. And and Jesus, when he saw this, felt compassion. Uh, the Greek word deno- denotes a feeling in your guts, in, in your bowels, in, in old language. This deep feeling. We've experienced it. Th- this distress at the plight of somebody. And because Jesus is a perfect manifestation of God, an illustration and, 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 and manifestation, again, of God, because he is God in the flesh we find that God is a God of compassion who deeply and wonderfully cares about us. And so Isaiah said this, Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. So here I am in my life asking God, why don't you do more? Why aren't there more healings? Why isn't there more salvation? Why aren't more people set free? Why isn't there more revival? And what compounds the problem is that I read the scriptures and say, well, God is just waiting to have compassion. He's longing to be gracious He's a God of justice, and yet we see and experience so much injustice in the world. But remember, when Christ came, it was a manifestation of the kingdom. It was an explanation of the way things will be in the fullness thereof. And he came healing, and he manifests compassion. And when we see in the Gospels that Christ has compassion, he's always moved with compassion. It's never an abstract compassion. We have this all the time. We watch the news and we're like, oh, shame. Oh, that's horrible. What are we going to eat? But you see, Jesus was actually moved with compassion. He's always moved with compassion in the gospel. He does something about the way he feels concerning the plight of humanity. And what he does here is interesting. So he sees the multitudes in verse 36. He understands their situation. He feels compassion. And now he responds. And here's what God does. In this instance, when he sees the brokenness of humanity, verse 37, then he said to his disciples. He's moved with compassion. Now he engages with his disciples. You and I. He says the harvest is plentiful. There's all kinds of people that need me, that need the Lord, that need salvation, that need healing, that need to be set free. It's plentiful. But the workers are few. Therefore, beseech or pray the Lord of the harvest, being Himself, to send out workers into the harvest. What Jesus does here is kind of unexpected. First, He asks Him to pray, but not necessarily work. That's sort of unexpected that he asks them to pray and not necessarily to work. What's more unexpected is he asks them to pray for workers, not to pray for the people. You see, what, what we think would happen generally is Jesus sees supply to the people. He grabs his disciples and he gets them working. And there's times where he did that and he does that. That's not what he does here though. He doesn't say, okay, look at the situation. Look at the mess. Look how thrashed everybody is. Okay, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. He doesn't say that. He beckons them to prayer, but even the prayer is more unexpected because we would think, oh, look how messed up the people are. Let's pray for the people. Let's ask God to fix them. That's not the prayer that he tells us to pray. He says, pray that workers would be sent out. Jesus asked him to pray, but not to work. He asked them to pray for workers, but not the people. So what's going on here? How are you to understand this interaction between Christ and his disciples? I think one of the questions that'll help us think it through is, is if we ask this. Why would Jesus even ask the disciples to do anything? I mean, he is God, Right? Right? And when Peter, you know, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter's like, you know, Jesus, you want me to open up a can on these guys or what? And Jesus is like, Peter, dude, I could call on a whole legion of angels, bro, chill. I'm God. Like, it's cool. I can handle myself. Why does Jesus even ever ask his disciples to do anything? Some time ago I was teaching at a pastor's conference, and uh, there was a bunch of pastors there, and some other pastors were teaching, myself being one of them and a bunch of other guys. And one of the guys was teaching, and, and the thrust of his teaching was that Jesus desperately needs you to do his work, that, that He needed the disciples. He couldn't accomplish it by himself. He said, in effect, and this is actually a quote, come on, guys, I can't do this myself. I need you guys to help me. I was reading a commentary on the book of Matthew by Warren Wiersbe last night, whom I love. I love Warren Wiersbe, great commentaries. You can trust them. He's a good guy to read in anything he's written, especially his biographies on Christians. You ought to get the book, uh, 50 Great Christians That Every Christian Should Know. Or something like that. It's incredible. Warren Wiersbe. I love the guy. But here's what he said in his commentary on this passage last night when I read it. He said, Jesus could not do the work alone. He needed others to help him. I don't know. I don't know if those guys are right. I don't know if if it's really correct to say Jesus couldn't do it alone. I understand the limitations of the incarnation, his voluntary surrendering of certain powers, but is this really the right way to delineate this theologically? Is that really what's going on here? Is Jesus really saying, I'm not gonna pull this off without you? Guys, I know you're just like screwball fisherman and a tax collector and a zealot, and one of you's a traitor, and you guys are arrogant and always arguing. But I really need you to do this for me. (laughs) See, I don't think it's a need thing that's happening. I think it's a love thing that's going on. I don't think it's a need thing that we're invited into the Great Commission to be part of Christ's work. He does beckon to sin, but I don't think it's a need thing. I think it's a love thing. I think that God loves us and he invites us to love him. And I think that one of the ways that we love others is by experiencing their heart. And when we get to experience Jesus teaching people and telling people about the good news and healing people, we're experiencing the heart of God. And it causes us to love God all the more. See, I don't think it's so much that He's inviting us into work as it is He's inviting us into His heart. Doesn't there come a time for parents? So we were, we're having so many babies in our church right now, it's awesome. And uh, you guys that are having babies, you know that you can't wait until your kids can relate to certain things. You know what I mean? Like when my son was growing up, I couldn't wait until he could comprehend dirt bike. I could not wait till he could get that because it was something I loved to do. It was something that was near to my heart. It was a part of me. And so at the earliest possible stage, ba-boom, dirt bike. And he was good at it. I, I couldn't wait till he could get surfing. You know what I mean? I I couldn't wait until he got the idea of guitars and a guitar. And my son totally gets it. I'm so sick. I I love guitars. I got that new pink one over there. Yeah, it's cool. It's pink. Pink is a new black. And I'm so weird about guitars. I think they're the most beautiful thing in the world. I, I really do. I think they're absolutely gorgeous. The right ones. And there's always, anybody who's been to my house can testify, there's always a guitar on my couch, always. And it's pretty much just on display because the couch is in the middle of the house. And so, you know, my wife's not gonna let me hang guitars in the living room, so I'm gonna put them on the couch. (laughs) And then anytime I'm there, I'm just, oh. And now my son has gotten into playing guitar and he does the same thing now. We didn't talk about it, but his guitar is always on the couch, And yesterday, I was studying for this message or the day before sometime, and I was studying on the couch, and my guitar was there. And, you know, I had my computer because I typed my notes, and I had a bunch of books and stuff, and there was pillows because my back is kind of, I have back problems. And and I needed more room, and his guitar was on the couch. And so I said, well, I'll move his guitar. And I took it into his room, and I set it there. And he came home. He had been out somewhere with his mom, and he walked in his room. He's all, Dad! And I'm like, in the living room, I'm like, what? He's all, what's my guitar doing in my room? I'm like, what do you mean? That's where it belongs. He's like, no, it doesn't. It belongs on the couch. And he carries it out and he puts it on the couch right next to mine. He's like, Pff. And I catch him doing the same thing. He'll put his guitar next to mine. And he'll just sit there and stare at him. And he talks about the differences in the contours and the different colored woods. And I love it. But you see, it's just us connecting and relating. And those are silly examples. None of those things are important. But how much more then that we connect in a love relationship with the things that are really important in our hearts. And so Christ invites us into his heart when he invites us into his work because what he loves to do is bless people. He loves to save people. He loves to heal people. So, he doesn't just invite us to do stuff, he invites us to pray. Here's why. This is a quote I read last night by Oswald Chambers. Prayer to God is not a way to get things from God, but so that we may get to know God. There's an important thing to remember. Prayer is not just a way to get things from God, but it's a way to get to know God. And I really think we need to capture this part of prayer because so much of our prayer lives are based on need. And we've been trying to grow beyond the needs, you know, of me, beyond that four-year theology, to to the the needs of the world, right? The church doesn't just exist to meet our needs. The church exists partly to meet the world's needs. We're trying to grow beyond that. and We're trying to grow beyond, you know, our own plans and get involved in God's goals, And so we're hoping to shift in prayer, but another way we need to shift in prayer is it's it's not just to get things from God, but it's to get to know God. And and I think that prayer is one way that we can get to know God and, and there's no other way to do it on that level. Reading scripture is one way, serving is another. But, but when we commune with the Lord in prayer, because prayer at its core essence has the understanding of to come to. So it's coming to God, but, but it needs to be one of those times where we don't come with just an agenda, but we come to get to know him. And I think that's so much of what Christ wants to do in our lives and so much of what he was doing with the disciples. You know, it says in Mark chapter three, verse 13 And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him, number one, and that he could send them out to preach, number two, and to have authority to cast out demons, number three. Notice the priority of what Jesus did. He called his disciples, but it wasn't work-based. It was relationship-based first. He didn't need them to preach and to cast out demons, but he wanted them to be with him. He called them to be with him. And only then did he want them to preach and to minister in that way. We've got to notice that priority because the issue of the Christian life is not so much about doing as it is being, but it's being with God. It's that whole Martha and Mary thing. Martha was doing so much and Mary was just chilling at the feet of the Lord. And in that instance, at that moment, the Lord said, this is the most important thing. And we need to lay hold of this aspect in prayer where the most important thing is to be with God. Not to demand of him that he do something or talk about what we need to do or what we ought to do. And then once we're with him, we experience his heart, then there's an effectiveness that will come to being on mission. Here's another quote from Chambers. When we, Actually, this is Wearsby, God bless him. When we pray as Christ commanded, we will see what he saw, feel what he felt, and do what he did. When we pray as Christ commanded, Then we'll see what he saw, feel what he felt, and do what he did. We'll get near to his heart. We'll start leaving our guitars on the couch. We'll get involved in the same things. The same things that are important to God will become important to us. There'll be a shared life there between us and God. And that's the goal. We realize that God loves to bless people. But even more... God loves to bless people in response to prayer. This is is important. God loves to bless people, but even more, he loves to bless them in response to prayer. Because then there's this deeper level of involvement, of relationship, really. We see this illustrated so many ways throughout Scripture. I'll just grab a couple little ones real quick. In Genesis 20, Abraham and Sarah are on their journey And one of the kings of the region, Abimelech, takes Sarah. I guess Sarah was good looking. Uh, Abraham knew it. And so he pretended like Sarah was his sister. And so the king said, great, I'm going to take her. And that wasn't cool with God. And so God deals with King Abimelech. And it says in Genesis 20, verse 7, the Lord speaking, Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you. And you will live. But if you do not return her, you may may be sure that you and all yours will die. Now, why didn't God just say, hey, just return the woman and I'll let you live. Because it's obvious that that was what God wanted to happen. It's obvious that that was God's will, that Sarah would be returned to Abraham and then Abimelech's life would be spared. But notice how God chose to do it. He said, he's a prophet and he'll pray for you and then I'll let you live. It was God's will that Abimelech live and that Sarah be returned, but God didn't want to do it apart from prayer. Isn't that interesting? He certainly was powerful enough to do it. It's clearly what he wanted to do, but more than just wanting to do it, he wanted to do it through prayer. Why? Abraham is called the friend of God. God loved when Abraham drew near. God loved to share his heart, share what he was doing. And so really he refused to do it apart from prayer. God is forcing prayer to be part of the equation in his will being accomplished. We see it in a ton of places. We see it also in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, God is telling Israel about their future restoration He's very clear that he's going to restore them, that it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. He's telling them, I'm going to do all this stuff. But then look what he says in the closing verses, verse 37 of Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God wants to restore Israel. He's promised to restore Israel, but he says that a part of that is going to be prayer. He's going to let them ask him to do what he wants to do. That's why the title of this message is "You know what's weird about prayer," and if we continue to search Scripture, the sobering truth is this: is that when we refuse to participate, there are certain things that God just won't do. He wants to do them, but he's forced prayer into the equation. And when we neglect it, there are certain things God won't do. In Exodus 32, Israel was in trouble. God said, I'm gonna wipe them out. And Moses said, God, would you please have mercy? And God said, okay. And he spared the whole nation because one man talked to God about it. In Ezekiel 22, we have a similar situation. Israel's in trouble again. And God is gonna judge them. And this time, God goes looking for someone who would stand in the gap. We see this all throughout the scripture. God's looking for an intercessor. He's looking for one person who will just come to him and say, Hey, wait a minute, God. Have mercy. And yet in Ezekiel 22, no one was found. And so God judged the nation. He had mercy because of one man's prayer in Exodus 32. And judgment came because no one prayed in Ezekiel 22. That is so sobering. Do you know what's weird about prayer? There are certain things that God will or will not do depending on human participation. It does not mean that we override the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is absolutely sovereign in every way but rather it is an expression of God's sovereignty that he beckons us into prayer. And when we neglect to do it, God in his sovereignty lets us experience the failures of prayerlessness. And so I'm asking God, why don't you do more? And then I got to believe he wants to do more. And I start to ask myself, why don't I do more? And then we've got to ask ourselves, why don't we do more? And it's not a need issue. It's a relationship issue. It's a love issue. Prayer is not a way to get things from God, but a way to get to know God. And so then, when we realize these things, prayer moves away from being utilitarian to being relational. There's no way around this fact. The more we cultivate our prayer lives, the more we experience the life of Christ. And that seems to be the one thing that all Christians want is more of Jesus. We all echo that prayer of John the Baptist or that statement that he made. I want to decrease that he might increase. And the one great way to do that is to come to him in prayer, but it seems to be that thing which is so difficult for us. And we realize missionally that God loves to bless people, but even more, it seems in scripture, he loves to bless them through prayer. What's important to see here is that in our life with Christ, there is both a centripetal force and a centrifugal force, right? A centripetal force is that which draws or pushes everything in toward the center. Centrifugal force pushes everything out away from the center. In Christian life, there is both a centripetal force and a centrifugal force happening. That's what's happening in this passage. Christ beckons us in. It's centripetal. He's he's wanting to pull his people into his heart. And then he wants to send us out into the world. It's centrifugal. And the Christian life is to be like this. It's drawing in and it's being sent out. It's coming near to experience and it's going out in mission. That's exactly what's happening in this passage. Sees the multitudes. He wants to do something about it. He could do it in and of himself. He was doing it in verse 35. But because of love and relationship, he beckons them in. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest because he knew that if they prayed about that situation long enough, they would get God's heart for it. And I think sometimes why I don't care enough is because I don't pray enough. I don't have God's heart for people. God's heart for situations. My heart fails My heart doesn't care enough. But if I could get on board with this centripetal thing, get sucked into the heart of God and catch God's heart for the multitudes, then it might just be me that's sent back out to them. What's interesting is that he told them to pray for workers and they would soon learn that they were those very workers, weren't they? Oh, sneaky, sneaky. Oh, God is so sneaky. Why don't you pray about that? (laughs) So many times our concern for people stops at prayer. And sometimes that's what it is. Sometimes we just pray. But I think when we engage in prayer on a relational level with God, there's a danger that we might be the answer to prayer. And that's a good risk. That's the right kind of danger that we want in life. Jesus knew that if he could just get these guys praying to the Lord of the harvest to send workers, that they'd eventually catch his heart. And some of them would become those very workers. And so what we need to do is be responsible with this passage. What's clear in scripture is that prayer changes things. Changes us to be sure. But it changes situations, communities, plights, and nations. So we got to ask ourselves as a church how can we be real purposeful about the centripetal force and be real purposeful about the centrifugal force? Making sure we're drawing near to God, purposeful in prayer, and going out. You know, that's why we plant churches. That's why in the next few months we're going to see the reality campus start in Ventura. That's why in the next three weeks, we're going to see Reality London start. That's why in January, we're going to see the church start in San Francisco. That's why we're meeting with multiple other church planners right now. Because we've drawn near and we've caught that centrifugal thing of pushing out. Because that's what Christ is doing. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it the church is still the greatest vehicle for evangelism in the world. And so we've caught the heart of God for the church. And so as a church then, we're involved in planning churches. Did you know that a new church is the most effective form of evangelism often in a community? That's why there's no problem planning churches where there's already churches. New churches are more effective at evangelism, statistics say. Did you know, missiologically speaking, as it pertains to missions, did you know when a people group is considered reached? There's over 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. Do you know how missiologists define reached? They look at a people and say, okay, they've been reached with the gospel. How they define that a people group is reached is when there is a vibrant, self-sustaining, reproducing, church-planting movement in that culture. Then and only then do missiologists consider a people group reached. When churches are being planted, when that centrifugal force is happening and there's a multiplication. That's why we're purposeful about that as a church. But how can we get purposeful about that on our streets, on your street, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? Because what Jesus said is, the harvest is plentiful. He wants to do more than we're giving him credit for. He didn't look at the multitudes and go, oh yeah, it's a bummer. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what to do. Probably not gonna do much. He looked, he said, there's so much to do. Pray the Lord of the harvest. So we need to be doing that. And the other thing I wanna say, and I just sensed this, and here's where we're finished is, I think God wants to heal people today. He's still the God who heals. Jesus still heals. And so I've prepared the prayer team. I've let them know and they've been prayed up and they've been seeking the Lord overnight. I think God wants to heal people. Are you sick today? God might want to heal you. He doesn't always heal and we trust him with that. But he can heal. Maybe it's an emotional thing for you. Some bitterness, some real wound. I really think the Lord wants to do some healing in this place today. He wants to draw us into his heart, heal us and send us out to the world. So when the prayer team comes in a moment, if you need healing, come up, let them lay hands on you. Lay hands on each other right where you're at, but let's seek the Lord. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we ask for that centripetal centripetal thing to be happening. Now draw us in, Lord. Draw us near to your heart in this place. Bring us into the house of prayer. Bring us into an attitude of prayer where we discover that you're there and that you're alive and you're powerful and you're active. Holy Spirit, come and move in our midst. Come and heal, Lord. Come and set right and renew and restore and repair what's gone wrong. Thank you that you wait on high to have compassion. And minister to our hearts. Give us your heart for our community for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our nation and the nations. Give us your heart, Lord. Draw us into yourself, Jesus, and draw near to us, Lord, and do a work